I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Ezekiel 2, 1 through 7. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. This is the very word of God. Well, we've begun our study of the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, and this morning we're taking a look at uh, chapter 2, the entirety of it, as well as the first 15 verses of chapter 3. This passage is about Ezekiel's commissioning to serve as one of Israel's great prophets. Now, what this has to do with you and me today is actually not that difficult to see because you and I have received a similar commission. Yes, got some news for you. You and I are also called to be prophets of God. Now, in case you think that is a bit of a stretch, consider that Moses longed for the day when God would put his spirit in his people and make all of them to be his prophets. That's Numbers eleven twenty nine. Moses said, would all of God's people would be prophets, that he would put his spirit in them you probably recognize in that longing of Moses the fact that God did exactly that on the day of Pentecost in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Peter said, this is what God promised to do. Pour out his spirit upon all flesh, just as Moses longed for. So 
new covenant people of God are prophets, are prophets. In fact, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse one, he urges all Christians to pursue love and to earnestly desire manifestations of the spirit, especially so that we might prophesy. Now, whatever you may think of the word charismatic, it is clear that in some sense, all of God's people in the new covenant are supposed to function as prophets of God. I think this is actually an undeveloped theme, um, an undeveloped idea, a New Testament idea that most of us uh, haven't thought through very much. We know that the New Testament tells us that there is a sense in which we are all priests of God. That's an Old Testament theme fulfilled in the New Testament. We are all to co-reign with Christ in his kingdom, an Old Testament theme fulfilled in the New Testament. But have you thought much of the fact that you are actually, as a new covenant person, member of God's new covenant, you are also to function as one of God's great prophets. Now, what does that mean? And how do we do it? I want to consider with you this morning as we look at Ezekiel's commission to the role of a, to the prophetic office. So I want to consider with you this morning, first, the prophet's role, second, the prophet's commission, and then third, the prophet's protection. The prophet's role, the prophet's commission, and the prophet's protection. First, okay, so what is a, what is a prophet? What does a prophet do? What is a prophet's role? So the inaugural vision that we looked at last week in chapter one where Ezekiel tells us of his close encounter with God, it left him at the end of the chapter flat on his face. And what happens next is a voice speaks to him. We can only conclude that this is the voice of God, the king sitting on the throne. And the voice gives him a commission. Ezekiel is to go to his people, look at verse four, and say... Thus says the Lord. So the priest, Ezekiel, spending his whole life preparing to be a priest, has been turned into a prophet. And what purpose does a prophet serve? Well, to put it simply, a prophet is simply a person who speaks for God. That's a prophet's role. That's the, the, the basic job description of a prophet is to speak on behalf of God. But we know, of course, in the Bible that there are true and false prophets. A true prophet, then, is one who speaks rightly for God, who, who speaks the words that God has given to him or to her to speak. Now, that might seem like an obvious point, but I want you to note it's a critical point in understanding a prophet's role because... Lots of people claim to speak for God. In fact, virtually everyone in the world claims to speak for God. And you certainly claim to speak for God. What do I mean? Well, if we're reading our Bibles 
and understanding the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself to be, we see that God's concern, what God wants to speak about, in every way touches the realities of the planet we inhabit. God is concerned about the world that he made. He didn't make a world and then say, ah, well, that wasn't such a good idea. Let's get everybody out of the world into this heaven, this disembodied place. No, God, in the beginning, made a world, and he cares about the world he made. And so do you. So the different claims that we make about how the world should be, the claim that this or that is right, that something ought to be obligatory and binding, claims like that are not just differences of opinion. They are prophetic claims. Every president or prime minister acts like a prophet. Every employer speaks like a prophet. By the way, so do the employees, you know, when the, pro- when the boss isn't looking. They also have an idea about how things should go around here. Every teacher is a prophet. Every parent is a prophet. And of course, so is every preacher and every politician. Now in Ezekiel 13, God condemns those who prophesy from their own hearts, those who follow their own spirit, those who have had a false vision and uttered a lying divination by saying, declares the Lord, when God did not actually say anything. We'll come to that in a few weeks. So false prophets, beware. But Christian, also take note that as a follower of Jesus, you can't opt out of this calling. You can't opt out of the prophetic role that you've been given. You and I have been entrusted with the very oracles of God, the very words of God. And we are false prophets if we don't speak it just as much as if we were to speak it wrongly. So the task of a prophet, you probably have picked up on, is a difficult task. It's a tough task, but it's an essential one. God intends to speak through his prophets. And by the way, that is in accordance with God's plan all throughout the Bible. You might say, well, can't God just speak for himself? (laughs) Well, of course he can. Of course he can. Of course he does. But the point is that God who made the world made you and me because he intends to share with us the rule and the reign of his planet. It's a great privilege. He didn't have to make us, but he did. Why? Because he wants to work with us. He wants to be in such union with us, his people, his special creation, that he intends to manage his world through his people. And so... One of the ways he does that is through his prophets. And I want you to consider some of the purposes that God wanted to achieve when he sent Ezekiel to be his prophet, to speak on his behalf. Look at first in verse three. God says he is sending Ezekiel to the people of Israel, but look how he calls them. He calls them, a nation, he calls them nations of rebels. Now that is a loaded accusation. The word nation is the Hebrew word goyim. (laughs) 
That's the word that is usually used in reference to everyone except the people of Israel. You know, to the Gentiles, the nations, the pagans. But here, it has become, uh, in calling Israel nations of rebels, God is saying, you're going to be sent to a people who have become indistinguishable from the rest of the nations. They become like the goyim, the pagans. And Ezekiel's goal as a prophet is to prosecute the people of Israel for becoming just like the nations around them. They are like the rest of the goyim, he calls them, rebels. Now, they have rebelled against God, but the word that he uses here in verse 3 as well as in verses 7 and 8 and then in chapter 3, verse 9, this word, rebels or rebellion, is not primarily a religious term. When you say you have rebelled against God, you instantly go into the realm of the religious and the spiritual. But that's not how the word is typically used in the Old Testament. It is used primarily for a political revolt. For example, when King Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, 2 Kings 24, verse 1. You know what that means. That's very political. That's very earthly. That's very tangible. And, and, and God sends Ezekiel to tell the people that their crime against their God is not like they've been caught speeding and deserve a ticket. It's more like they've been caught committing treason against God and his kingdom. So it's a big deal. And that's why when God brings his consequences, his punishment upon the nation of Israel, surprise, they're very political. They're about kingdoms and people and places and temples. The people are removed from their homeland. They go into exile. The monarchy collapses. That's very political. Soon enough, the capital city will be destroyed and Israel's temple burned down. And this has global ramifications because as one commentator puts it, the chosen nation has become appropriate to their own action unchosen. That's a big deal because the whole point for which God chose Israel in the first place was so that they would bring the light of his love and the justice of his kingdom into a loveless and unjust world. So if Israel goes down, so goes the hope, literally, of the whole world. God sends his prophet then not only to prosecute them for their crimes, but also then in a surprising way to represent hope. Hope. Should the chosen people repent of their crimes and come back to their God, then there would be hope. Verse 5 indicates, however slight it might be, where this hope lies. Look what it says. God says, whether they hear or refuse to hear. So note this. True worship of the true God will produce a people who walk in his ways and act justly and bring justice into his world. True worship of the true God will produce a people who walk in his ways and therefore act justly and bring justice 
into God's world. So should Israel listen? Should they hear the prophet and repent? This would mean not only a turning away from their idolatrous worship, like going into a different temple, a different religion, but it would also mean that they would be transformed from their unjust ways. These two things are tied together. It is because of their idolatrous worship, Ezekiel chapter 6, that the nation of Israel had begun to demonstrate unjust ways, Ezekiel 7. And the prophet's going to prosecute both of those things. The chosen people could not separate worship from practice. The two are inseparably joined together. And by the way, this is something that the secular world tries to deny. As if right behavior can come from the human heart without it being transformed. Now, if we just all were loving, if we just all were kind, how's that working out in a broken world? But by the way, this is also a problem that we Christians often try to ignore as if we think that if we just get our doctrine right, then our practice won't matter really all that much. A prophet will not let you get away with that. A prophet will not say, well, at least you have your theology correct. The the, the practice doesn't matter that much. God made a world in which these two things are inseparable. Right worship of the true God leads to a people who act in his ways and bring justice into his world. Now, in Ezekiel's case, (laughs) we've already seen this. We've already got a warning. It's plain that the people are not going to listen. Look at Ezekiel chapter three, verse seven. God says it. The house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you because they're not willing to listen to me. But Ezekiel's work is not going to be in vain because God also said back in chapter two, verse five, that even if the people refuse to repent, they will know that a prophet has been among them. Now that stumped me. I mean, I I think this has been the main thing that I've been pondering about this text. And it's worth a moment of our reflection. It's not hard to see the value of people knowing a prophet, a true prophet has been among them. If they listen to him, if they listen to her, you walk into the workplace, you're like, I think this is the way things should go. And everybody says, you are a prophet of God. We agree with you. We're going to implement every... Then you're like, hey, this is kind of fun to be a prophet. But what happens? What happens, parent, when the people that you're sent to as a prophet don't listen? What happens when you're speaking on God's behalf and all you get is rebellion? You say, what, what's the point? What, what am I here for? <laughs> and here's what God says. Even if they refuse to repent, they will know they will know that there's been a prophet among them. So let's think it through for a moment. What good is it for people to say, yeah, I know you're speaking on behalf of God. I even know that what you're saying is true, but don't think for a moment I'm going to do what you say. Why does God care about his prophets being recognized if they aren't heeded, if they aren't listened to, if they're not obeyed? 
It's not so that when the judgment comes, God can say, ha ha, see there? I told you so. No, no. It's so that when the judgment comes, even if the judgment comes, God can say not, see, I told you so, but see, I have loved you so. You see, the prophet being there is a testimony to the fact that you might have abandoned me, but I have not once abandoned you. You have been unfaithful, but God says, I have not been unfaithful. You have moved, but I'm still here. That's the reason for the prophet being there, even if the response is disobedience. In fact, I came across this this week, and then I had to look it up. The, the only time the word prophet occurs in the Psalms is um, other than the inscription Psalm 51. So let's leave that to the side. But the only time you actually find the word prophet in the Psalms is in Psalm 74. Just so happens, this was in my, my assigned reading for the, for the week. And I came across it, and so it caught my attention because I'm meditating on this. Like, what's the whole point of a prophet? And in Psalm 74, this is a psalm of lament. It's a, song of, a psalm of lament after the fall of Jerusalem. And Psalm 74 uh, says this, The people are lamenting, saying, we do not see our signs. In other words, the temple's burned down. We have no indication that God is among us. And then they say this, there is no longer any prophet. It's the only time you'll find a prophet in the Psalms. And there is none among us who knows how long. You see, the prophet is a testimony of God's presence God is still there, even in your rebellion, even in your running away from God. A prophet signifies God is still here. Ezekiel's presence as a prophet to the exiles would prove to the people who deserved every bit of what they were experiencing that God has not moved. He was still the same faithful lover of his own that he had always been. And in the same way, your role, Christian, as a prophet is to testify in such a way that we could both bring conviction to the world for their sin, but also representation to the world that God still loves. He still loves the world. This God of love is still here. Probably this morning, there's a brother or sister who needs you to represent God. Pastor Jod prayed. He said this in his prayer. We didn't talk about this, but he said, you said something about we get to see each other's face and see the face of God in your brother, something like that. It's like, that is profound, and you don't believe it. So I'm trying to get you to believe it this morning. You are a prophet sent to somebody this morning to put a hand on their shoulder who's like, is God even here? Does God even care? And this morning, you prophet, by putting a hand on somebody's shoulder, looking in their eyes, and praying for them, you will be God's testimony that he is still here. It's powerful. It's powerful. So now, Christian, if we're going to do that, if we're going to represent God to the world, then we must always remember we've been sent to represent God's love, his faithful, covenant-keeping, steadfast love to the world. How do we carry it out? How can we possibly carry out this great calling? I want you to consider next the prophet's commission, beginning in chapter 2, verse 8. And here we find Ezekiel is told to eat a scroll before he's commissioned to go and speak to the house of Israel. So here we go. Oh, boy. 
Here comes the bizarre stuff. It's one of those bizarre moments. Just get, just get used to it. We're going to get a lot of them. Prophets do weird things. And, and by the, it's hard to tell what is happening here. If, as I suggested last week, Ezekiel's encounter was objective, just like Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, we're left wondering, you mean he like opens his mouth physically and eats a scroll made of a papyrus, undoubtedly a papyrus plant? That's what he does? Whatever happened, it's clear that this moment had a profound effect on Ezekiel. It seems to be the experience that catapulted him into his prophetic task. But whatever actually happened, the meaning of him eating the scroll is quite clear. Ezekiel's commissioning begins. If he's going to carry out his role, here's the first thing he has to do. He's got to take in the message he's been sent to proclaim. (laughs) You're going to have to eat the words of God. You're going to have to take them in. Uh, It's this message that will control and consume him for his entire prophetic ministry, for everything God has designed for him to do. Son of man, he says in chapter 3, verse 3, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you. Fill your stomach with it. Ezekiel is to be consumed and controlled by the message that God gave him. And this sounds a lot like the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote of eating God's words and finding them to be a joy and the delight of my heart. Jeremiah 15, 16. Ezekiel describes the experience of receiving God's message in similar ways. Chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. The message of God that his prophets are called to proclaim, the very words of God are, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, that's why I asked our worship team to sing, let us sing it this morning, they're perfect and sure. They're right and pure. They're clean and true. Psalm 19.10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The words of God are pure, delightful words. Eat them, take them in. They're better than gold, than the finest gold. Prophet, this is where you begin. But wait just a moment. We're going to have to wait to find out exactly what the message is that Ezekiel is called to proclaim, but we've already been given an idea. When Ezekiel tells us that when he looked at this scroll, he saw written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. It's as if someone, having read what is written on the scroll, has scribbled into the margins, oh no, or please God, or my oh my. Ingesting these words is probably going to give you a bellyache. In fact, later in chapter 3, verse 14, Ezekiel says he did experience some sort of indigestion. He goes to the exiles, he says, in bitterness, in the heat of my spirit. So tell us, Ezekiel, what's it like to consume the words of God? What's it like as a prophet to take in the very words of God? What is that experience like? Is it positive or negative? Is it bitter or sweet? And Ezekiel would say, 
It's both. Perhaps he would say that it was like being recruited and sworn into the Marine Corps. Clearly, it's a high calling, a great honor, a sacred duty, but don't think for a moment this is going to be easy. This is going to hurt. Ezekiel, you might even die. This is not for wimps. And by the way, there's no softening the blow here either. If he's going to be a prophet, he can't be rebellious like Israel has been. The first thing God tells him to do here in verse 8 is like a test. Ezekiel must eat the message. Don't be rebellious. You got to eat the message. You got to go all in with the bitter, sweet words of God. And from here on, there's no going back. Christian, if you're going to faithfully serve as a prophet of God in this world, you got to have to go all in with the words of God. Yes, they are sweet words. Yes, amen. They are the words of life. They are words of salvation. But don't start writing out the difficult parts of the word of God that you'd rather ignore. Don't just gravitate to the words that even a, a Christless world loves. You're going to have to speak the whole counsel of God. And this is not going to be easy. In fact, in Revelation chapter 10, John receives the same prophetic commission as Ezekiel. We've already learned that if you're going to understand Revelation, you're going to have to get a grip on Ezekiel. Here's one of those clear passages. Because there is no doubt that what John writes about in Revelation 10 is dependent entirely on Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3. Let me just read to you Revelation 10, 8 through 10, and see if you can see the similarities. Of course you can see them. They are so obvious. Listen. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, it uh, when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. You see the similarities? You say, okay, Ben, that's nice. Nice little piece of Bible trivia. Revelation 10, Ezekiel 2, that's nice. So what? Here, here's so what? Revelation 10 is not just John having the same experience that Ezekiel had. The context of Revelation 10, this particular chapter, is the Christian commission. Revelation 10 is all about, these are, this is what is true for every disciple of Jesus, starting with the apostles and you and I who confessed what we call the Apostles' Creed. This is our experience as well, Christian. Our calling is to go into the world and make disciples. But don't think that's an easy calling. It's a prophetic calling. Not only are we to baptize disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we are told we are also to teach disciples to observe everything Jesus has commanded. You don't get to pick the sweet parts that everyone loves. You got to go all in. You got to take it all. To be a Christian is to be a prophet of God, proclaiming a bittersweet message and embodying the message ourselves. Don't be rebellious to the message. Eat it. Take it in. So 
there's no way that any faithful prophet of God, any true preacher, can make the prophetic commissioning any easier than it was for Ezekiel or for John. This is a sacred calling you have, Christian. God's given it to you, an enormous privilege. It is sweet to be able to speak for God. What an honor. And by the way, the the message we preach, in case you've forgotten, is a message of euangelion, a good news message. This is the message of life, which God's prophets will find over and over again to be sweet in the mouth, even if we must wait for the day when we are raised from the dead into the immortal life of Jesus and inherit the world as our eternal reward. Yeah, we're waiting for that day. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But even as we wait, taking in the message, taking in the gospel over and over again, it is sweet to the taste. But until that day, God's people must walk the path with a bit of a pit in our stomachs. We carry a message of salvation, but this message, if rejected or ignored, also is a message of judgment. We who bring this message cannot stand apart from it. The eating of the scroll means fully identifying with the message. It means, in the words of another commentator, to internalize the prophecy and put it to work in your own life. In other words, you might say that a true prophet of God is what he or she eats. Having eaten the scroll, Ezekiel has sealed his fate in the same way that Jesus, the great prophet, the very word of God himself, sealed his fate when he submitted to the Father's will and took on human flesh. There's no going back. In Gethsemane, he prays in pain. Isn't there another way? But he sealed his fate. He's taken in the very words of God. He is the very word of God, and therefore, he must see it through. What was true of Ezekiel and John the Revelator and of Jesus himself, Christian, is what is true of you and me who would follow Jesus. This is our test. Following Jesus sounds really nice. And it is. (laughs) It is. But following Jesus means picking up your cross. You very well may die. So again, wimps need not apply. Now, to be a prophet of God is a dangerous calling, and we've been seeing that to be a Christian is to be a prophet. There's no other way. There's no plan B. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to be one of God's prophets. But God is a good shepherd. He doesn't send us out into this dangerous calling without protection, divine protection. God gave Ezekiel in his commissioning the protection that he needed for his calling. And so be sure, Christian, he's going to do the same for you. Indeed, he is. What is this prophet's protection? Well, the first is simply, it's, it's divine protection. It's divine. It's the protection of God himself. 
Now, divine protection does not mean that we experience no pain in carrying out our commission as his disciples, as his prophets. It doesn't mean that when you go into your workplace and your neighborhoods and your home and you speak on behalf of God, everyone's gonna love you, receive you. Probably not. But it does mean that God promises to his prophets a greater strength, which is sure to prevail. Take a look. You say, where is this coming from? Okay, two places. Chapter two, verse six. Take a look at it. God says, and you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Easy for you to say. I mean, you've just told me they're gonna reject what I say. They're not going to believe me. And because I'm speaking some pretty strong words, I'm, I'm kind of afraid. Okay, don't be afraid. Here's what he says. Though briars and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Now, that's what the ESV says. That's what virtually every English translation says. But many commentaries will point out that that's probably not the right translation. You say, yeah, who are you, Ben, to say that? I'm I'm looking at the Hebrew scholars here. You look at the commentaries, and here's what you'll find. The The Hebrew can literally be translated here, not though briars and thorns are with you, but because briars and thorns are with you. So in other words, commentaries point out that this part of the verse, in fact, this is pretty typical for a prophetic call. At this point in the prophetic call, after giving the commissioning, giving the warning, this is what's gonna happen. At this point in a prophetic call, what we, are, what we expect here is not threats to the prophet, but symbols of his protection, which is why we probably should understand the briars and thorns and the scorpions to actually represent divine protection. God is saying to Ezekiel, yes, you're being sent out on a very tough assignment, but make no mistake, whatever pain you're going to face, whatever confrontation, whatever frustration you're going to face, this is no match for God and his purposes. God is not going to fail in sending his prophet. No, no, God is going to succeed. And God is promising here, Ezekiel is going into the battle surrounded by divine protection. So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Now, again, I just, we got to say this to each other over and over again. What Ezekiel is not to fear is not pain. What he is not to fear is failure. The people are going to be stubborn in their resistance. They're going to do everything they can to thwart God's purpose. But God's protection for his prophets is certainly not that there will be no pain, but rather there will be no failure of achieving the goal. We turn to the New Testament, we find in Paul's description, very familiar to us, of the Christian putting on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. You can't possibly draw the conclusion from that text that your battle against, quote, the cosmic powers over this present darkness is going to be painless, is going to be easy. You don't put on a breastplate or carry a shield, or put on a helmet when you go into a situation where the greatest threat is a splinter in your finger. 
You need those things when the greatest threat is a blow that could take you out. But the Christian is promised the divine protection of resurrection. An armor, note it, that is stronger than death itself. Even if you die, Jesus says, yet shall you live. And as he proved in raising Lazarus from the dead, he means literally your body dies, it comes back to life. That's the Christian hope. That's the divine protection. (laughs) Even if you die, you're a resurrection person. You're going to be raised from the dead. So do not fear. Do not fear. Second, in chapter three, we find again God telling Ezekiel not to fear. He tells the new prophet, the people are not going to listen to your message because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. So don't fear. (laughs) Ezekiel's message, he says, it's not gonna get through their thick skulls and their rocky hearts, but don't fear. Because look at what God says next in verses eight and nine. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. The only thing that can prevail over the hardened hearts of sinful humanity is the steely strength of God himself. And this is the strength that God promises to Ezekiel, not just divine protection, but divine strength, the very power of God himself. The prophet does not possess that power himself, in himself, but when he faces the resistance of Israel, he can bank on divine strength. Indeed, he had better bank on it because just as Paul urges the Christian to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, don't you dare go into battle trusting in your own strength. So Christian, If you do not draw on this strength, on the very strength of God, you have no chance against the powers of darkness that are unleashed in the world in one last act of resistance against the prevailing power of God. If you say, well, I've prayed my prayer, I've been baptized, I've joined a church, I guess I'm good, and you don't draw on the divine strength of God day by day, you are in danger. How can we avail ourselves of this divine power? And what does that even mean? We've already seen that it doesn't mean you don't get a pass on pain or sorrow or grief. Far too many Christians have been told a very bad story. Come after Jesus and it all goes well. And you say, I know that's not true, but when you suffer and when you grieve or when you're in pain, I guarantee you, you're gonna be tempted to think that. So we had better get our expectations in proper order here, brothers and sisters. I'm trying to help us 
get this straight in our minds. And at the same time, too many Christians in the throes of pain and sorrow and grief find themselves throwing their hands up on the brink of losing their faith and concluding altogether that God must have failed. So what can we do? How do we draw on this divine strength? Well, notice that our text this morning ends in verses 12 to 15 as the Spirit of God lifts the prophet up and he hears a voice which sounds something like an earthquake as it rumbles out the words, blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. Now, I know. Like, what what is that all about? But put yourself where Ezekiel is. He's seeing this divine, this, this divine vision, encounter, experience. What, what words do we have for chapter one? He's seeing this whole thing play out. And the thing that he knows clear as day is somehow, somehow, far away from Jerusalem, far removed from the holy of holies of the temple in Jerusalem, he has been brought into the very presence of God. It's an experience that has overwhelmed him because somehow his theology is going through a shift. It's being changed. He's in the very presence of God and he's in Babylonia. And he has come to realize, to his great surprise, not only is God still reigning and ruling, though Israel is in exile, but God is on the move. Remember those wheels? (laughs) God is on the move while they're in exile. This is what will sustain the prophet, and this is what will sustain you. Only when you can see that the meaning of the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus, and especially his ascension, is that the kingdom of God at long last, the promise of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven has been inaugurated. Only with that theology will you be able to endure the conflicts and the pain that are ahead of you. Day by day then, let us come into the presence of Jesus, the divine king. How do you do that? You come into his throne room, the New Testament makes clear, through spirit-empowered prayer, drawing near to God himself because heaven and earth have now intersected in the kingdom of God, and there you draw strength from his divine presence so that you can be sent out as his true prophet, bearing witness to the reality of the kingdom of God. May God make it so. Let's pray together. So Father in heaven, we ask now for your help, your great help. Oh Lord, may we get a vision like Ezekiel had. And I'm sure that Ezekiel would tell us that the experience would not be all that different if we could be transported by the Holy Spirit for just a moment and catch a glimpse of the glory of God fully revealed in Jesus of Nazareth, we would be transformed. We would see everything differently. We would see the world differently. We would see our pain and our suffering and our grief differently. 
we would know that God is on the move. And as our Lord promised, the gates of hell would not prevail against his new covenant people, against his church. Would you give us a glimpse, O Lord, this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and